It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Chris Canterbury is the owner and head wrench at Boxer Metal. He has a rich history with airheads dating back to his days working with William Plam at Santa Cruz BMW in the 1980s. Since then, Chris has established his own brand with Boxer Metal. You may have seen his R90S build on the Naked Speed television program a few years back. If not, it's certainly worth looking up. His passion for airheads continues with the design, development, and sale of new products and parts for custom airhead builds. So let's get right into it. It's Chris Canterbury on the Airhead 247 podcast. We're on the line with Chris Canterbury from Boxer Metal. And Chris, good to visit with you on the phone this morning. Let's get started, uh, I guess, kind of at the top here. Uh, I'm kind of familiar with what you do. I've seen your website and some of the builds you've done, which we'll get into uh, here a little bit later. But uh, just let's start off with telling me what Boxer Metal is all about. Well, thanks for having me this morning. Um, we do custom BMW motorcycles from the beginning of time through the new bikes. Um, and we build bikes for people all over the country and all over the world. I noticed on your website... <clears throat> Uh, in, in addition to some of the builds uh, that you highlight on there, uh, you also do some custom fabrication, uh, particular uh, to your shop, uh, particular parts and things like that. And then you, like a lot of shops, you do some uh, outsourcing from other uh, product providers. For instance, you know, I saw you got a Cybern Rock uh, kit available there and some other things like that. But um, tell me a little bit about as far as what you guys specialize in as far as custom parts that you make in the shop specifically for custom or cafe builds? Right. So I have a, a, a bike I pieced together and built a stand for so I can roll it around the shop. And it's a post-70 airhead, and I can bolt on a rear frame from any, any year airhead, a swing arm, any front end. Um, I primarily use it for building custom exhaust. We do a lot of custom exhaust, um, not just for looks but for performance as well. Um, we build custom wheels, and uh, we uh, we design our own parts. You know, we've got our own rear set rear sets and choke knobs and a bunch of little tchotchke parts as well for building custom BMWs. And I and I imagine you've got a, a pretty good machine shop um, that uh, tends to all that. You've got a lathe and uh, all the required uh, tidbits and whatnots. Yeah, in-house, we have a full fabrication shop, so we have a lathe, a mill, um, all the tools to hand form, steel and aluminum, um, you know, various grinders and sanders. As far as production, um, we've recently turned all of the production of the boxer metal 
line of parse over to Cognito Moto. Okay. And, uh, yeah, tell me about that. So I'm not familiar with them. How'd that partnership come about? So Cognito Moto has been around for at least four or five years that I'm aware of. Uh, they might have been around for longer than that. And they make uh, components so you can put a GSXR fork on your airhead, they make wheel hubs. They make a specific wheel hub for us. Um, and they do it for BMWs and Hondas and and various other Japanese bikes. And I think they even do some stuff for early sportsters. Super high-end, very well thought out and made um, machined aluminum parts. And uh, I've worked with Devin, the owner, on the two BMWs that he has built um, and we just kind of developed a relationship over time, and I reached out to him last year and asked if he would be willing to take over production of all of the parts that we currently have, and we have some new parts coming out as well. Um, and he said, sure. So we're slowly working on that process one part at a time. So they've uh, basically taken your your designs and put them into production for uh, for consumer purchase. Correct. I've literally sent them a CAD file, and they're making the part. Um, and the idea is that they will drop ship for us as well as have our products on their website. Well, that seems pretty convenient uh, for you, and I guess that also frees up a little bit of time for you to do some other things, no? Yeah, I mean, at this point, um, it's just me in the shop. Uh, in the past, you know, I've had various employees, and and my wife had been a big part of the shop for for years. I mean, we've worked together for over twenty years, and she decided to go back to school and get two degrees. And she's busy. Uh, she does commercial photography and graphic design, and she's very busy with that. So, I'm I'm left to my own uh, <laughs> craziness in the shop. So I try to spend you know as much of a day as possible working on bikes in the shop. Um, and so I've tried to outsource most of our products being drop shipped, um, with a, a, a good variety. And it's, and it's only stuff that we would actually use on a build in the shop. I follow you. I follow you. you know, we, there's nothing on our website we wouldn't use or haven't used. Um, and that way we know it's a good part. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned your wife, uh, there, uh, I did want to ask you, uh, about that. I'll jump a little bit forward here on my line of questions. So yeah, you guys started off, I guess, uh, it was just the two of you. Uh, and right. you, you mentioned she, uh, does graphic design and photography. So that was her background. Uh, what was your sort of background? What were you doing before you kind of went full-time into this? Well, I had a mail-order BMW parts business for 20 years called Eurotech Motorsports. Uh, and for 10 of that, my wife, my wife worked with me. Um, and then when I stopped doing that, I had already been doing, you know, building custom cars and custom BMW motorcycles out of my garage and then later a small workshop away from the house. And uh, she was always there. She was a, an amazing mechanic. Um, there's really nothing she couldn't do. She's very, very mechanical. So I miss having her around the shop, but I'm glad that, you know, she's, um, following her dreams and passions. We have, we have two kids and they're growing and out of the house now. And that 
preempted her to go back to school and follow her dreams and passions. So you've really been working in the motorcycle industry most of your life then, it sounds. Yeah, this is my 37th year. Yeah, I started off as an apprentice mechanic at an independent BMW car shop in the early and mid-80s, um, back when gray market cars were really popular. So we're building a lot of fun hot rod BMW cars and a lot of gray market cars. Um, and then um, I got my first BMW motorcycle, and uh, it all just kind of spiraled from there. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's not uncommon. I, you know, when I spoke with William Plam at Boxer 2 Valve, he started out as uh, he was going to originally be a Mercedes mechanic, uh, but ended up getting the, the motorcycle bug, um, you know, when he was uh, a friend of his brought a slash five by. So what was your first uh, BMW bike? Was it an Airhead? Yeah, it was an R75 slash five. Yep. And... Uh... I was uh, working part-time at a BMW Porsche dealership in the parts department, and it was a, it was a dealership that I grew up in. Um, and my boss and longtime friend said, hey, there are these two old BMWs sitting at a body shop down the road. You should go check them out. And so I went and checked it out, and there was an R65 and an R75 slash 5, and I fell in love with the slash 5. So was it a, a black long wheelbase or a short wheelbase? What color was it? It was a short wheelbase, small tank, and somebody had painted it pearl white. And oh. it was a mess. <laughs> it was an absolute mess. You know, growing up on the coast, it had every signs of being on the coast for a long time. Sure, sure. Do you remember what do you remember what you paid for it? I want to say I paid four hundred dollars for both bikes. Wow. Yeah, and at that time, I had a little 500 Kawasaki that I was riding around, and Al Jesse of Jesse Luggage was the head mechanic at the Kawasaki BMW dealer in Monterey, California at the time, and he and I had become friends, and so evenings and weekends, if I needed help, he'd come over to where I was living in a condo, and so I was working in it, you know, in a carport, basically, and uh, he would help me. And back then, there was no internet. So anytime I had to source parts, you know, I had to wait for my BMW owner's news to show up and look at the classified. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days, yes. Yeah. Um, and so once I got the bike running, um, an old friend of mine that was a car salesman at the dealership that I'd worked at and grew up in said, hey, you got to meet this guy, Bill Plam. He owns a dealership in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. You guys really hit it off. And I got my Slash 5 running. You know, it still had issues. It wasn't running great. So I called up Bill and introduced myself and set up a time to show up on a Saturday. And I rode the bike over there, and we started chatting. And the next thing I know, I am working for Bill Plam, running his parts department, selling bikes, helping out in service, riding service. Um, and uh, for the next three or so years, Bill and I were just the best of friends and still are today. Um, and, uh, I, I learned a lot and Eddie was a baby. I mean, I remember carrying Eddie around as a baby. Sure. Yeah. His son. Yeah. And watching him grow up. Um, so, you know, those guys have been a, a part of my life and, and my family for a long, long time. Well, how about that? I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, 
You know, the, there's not many degrees of separation uh, between fans of Airheads, and I guess really especially, you know, in your uh, part of the country, uh, and especially around that time, there were only so many places you could go. Yeah, I mean, in the in the Bay Area in California, you know, you had Plan BMW, Bill's shop, you had San Jose BMW, and a little bit further out was Cal BMW, and then even further out was BMW San Francisco. Um, I think the only independent shop at that time was Rick Weber's Sign of the Twins in Redwood City, and that was kind of it. I mean, and there was no Internet, so you basically had to go see somebody or call them. Um, yeah, it's not like today where everything's at your fingertips. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's, I'm curious to dig in a little bit more when you were working, uh, well, you call him Bill Plam. Um, yeah. so he had, is that when he had the actual, he was a dealer then, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Willie P had been a dealer for, I think going on, let's see, I think he'd been a dealer for four or five years at that point, maybe a little bit longer. Okay, so wait a minute. Now, there's yet another name. So, Will, so Willie P is yet another Willie moniker? P was my, yeah, <laughs> Willie P has always been my nickname for him, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. And what year was that? What? Uh, let's get a little time stamp on this thing. That would have been 1980, 88, 89, 90, and part of 91, maybe. Okay, so... You were still doing service, writing service tickets, parts, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and there were times that um, there were times, especially like after the '89 earthquake, it was just Bill and I in the shop, and so we were both doing everything, and we were working seven days a week. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. And so you—that's that, interesting to me because. You were sort of there right, uh, I don't want to say, I mean, that sort of right as the classic boxer airhead uh, model was starting to come to an end. So I guess, you did. let me ask you a couple questions here about that. So around that time, you're still involved selling new, selling and servicing new bikes at the time. So late 80s. Uh, early nineties. So you were obviously you were seeing GSs, uh, you know, the R100 GSs when they were new. Yeah. Uh, we were taking them out and taking them into the Sierras and giving them a what for. And what kind of, you know, I'm just curious when they were new, what kind of service and issues, if, if any were common or what were you seeing with those back then when those bikes were new, as opposed to, you know, Nowadays, we all know the sort of, you know, quote-unquote weak points or, or things that all commonly need attention on those. What kind of stuff were you seeing when those bikes were, were new? Boy, really nothing. I mean, they were solid. Really? They were super, super solid, yeah. Um, you know, K-bikes were coming in at that point as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had issues with K-75s not oil rings not sealing and um we had little weird electrical gremlins with k1s when they came out in fact i sold mike corbin a k1 um but yeah the airheads were solid so you weren't see so you weren't necessarily seeing 
you know, the the you know the circlip issue or drive shaft issues or or you know rear charging sh- system issues, starter issues, none of that. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we, I, I don't remember seeing any of that. And, and uh, matter of fact, I ended up I ended up selling my slash five and buying an eighty nine R one hundred GS that a customer had bought and traded in on a different bike. Um, and I rode that all the way to Canada, um, over to the island and toured around. And the only issues I had on that trip is I broke a shock mm. and I broke the shifter. Huh. Well. And I pulled into a gas station um, back when there were service stations. <laughs> right. And it, they had a welder and they had some hanger, you know, coat hanger. And I welded the shifter back together. And I rode all the way into Canada with a broken shock. So did uh, the the strut didn't actually break the metal part. It was what you had a blowout in the piston or something yeah, like that. Completely blowout, and I had basically no suspension at all. It was like riding a buckboard. <laughs> and so I called up Bill, and he sent me a shifter. He sent me a shock and a box of condoms. <laughs> Here I am at customs opening up this box. <laughs> and the first thing I pull out was a box of condoms. <laughs> yeah. Trojan extra large, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember exactly, but that was pretty funny. Yeah. That's pretty good. Well, that's interesting, yeah. you know, and you mentioned the uh the eighty nine uh version of the GS, which as far as the R one hundred paralever GSs go, I would have to say, personally speaking, those are my particular favorite of that era in in of the fact that they still hadn't put the integrated fairing on there. Right. Yeah. It was still kind of a, even though it wasn't lightweight, but it still had that lightweight sense about it like the R80 did. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I've got a, I personally, I've got a R80 uh, GS, you know, an 81 model. And after about two years of owning it, you know, one of the first things I did was I just swapped the front end uh, from an 89 GS onto that bike, which was great because, you know, it was essentially, you know, a bolt-on uh, proposition. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot to it, and it still had uh, still had the ability, especially on the top of the fork tubes and on the triple yeah. tree, that you could put on the auxiliary gauges and, and stuff right. like that, right. and, the, and the headlight, yeah. uh, you know, a little clam, plastic clam fit right on there. It was a nice, yeah. nice upgrade for me, and I've always, you know, had a sweet spot for those uh, those early pair levers. Was yours white, uh, the white with the blue trim, or what color was it? Mine was mine was the bumblebee, okay. and then Acherbus USA had imported three of their large tanks for the R80GS, and I ordered one to make it fit the R100GS, and um, so I ended up making a bracket. And after I made one, I contacted them and I said, hey, I could easily make you a dozen brackets so you could offer these tanks. And now all of a sudden, the big Acherbis tank was available for the R100GS. Oh, very cool. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. 
Boxer 2 valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Yeah. And uh, your story about changing out the front fork on your, your R80 reminded me of a story of, so when Andy Goldfine of Aerostitch did Russia and Mongolia with Helgi Pedersen, he took his R80GS, and Helgi was on an R100GS. And one of Helgi's requirements was that Andy upgraded the bike for more compatibility parts-wise. So I put an R100GS fork on Andy's bike, but I retained the R80 front wheel. Oh, okay. So, you, yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So I made, you know, I made a custom axle and spacers and a caliper mount. Um. And Andy rode that bike and still has it today, actually, um, yeah. through China and Mongolia. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, staying on that topic there, that was one thing when I did that swap on my bike. Uh, of course, I didn't change the hub or anything like that or the caliper mount. I just went ahead and bought a, a later model front wheel, uh, which I have to say I I do prefer that, if not for the main reason is the the bearing situation in the front wheel is just so much easier to mess with than, you know, the old, you know, wedding band and preload and all right. that other stuff. I mean, you know, the the later ones, you just pop in the seal bearings and you're done with it. Yeah. Yeah. So my, you know, customizing of BMW motorcycles and, and making parts literally started in the 80s. Wow. Wow. That's really yeah. cool. I, I had no idea your connection to uh, Willie P., yeah. Um, but that, that's really neat. Uh, I, I wish I had to know that on the front end when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, but, uh, we'll, we'll save that for another day. So you mentioned you sold the, the your original slash five, uh, you got, yep. you got the GS we were just talking about. So w when you got that first slash five, uh, what, what was sort of the appeal to you with that bike? What, what sort of latched on to you and is has kept you involved in them uh, all these years? It had that vintage look, but it had, you know, modern, more modern suspension than a Slash 2. It had electric start. Um, saddlebags were common back then. Mm -hmm. So I could go touring on the bike, which I did. I ended up riding the bike almost 30,000 miles a year um, for about three years. And then I uh, I went through the, you know, working for Bill and having access to parts in a shop. And, you know, I'd completely gone through the bike and I hot-rodded it with R90S pistons and a sport cam. And 
Um, I worked with a company in the Bay Area and developed better brakes for Slash 5s, um, which I ended up uh, selling for almost 20 years. So what was the upgrade there with the front drum, I guess? Yeah, front and rear drum lining. We came up with a better lining, and, you know, we cut grooves in it, and we arced them and made sure they fit the drums well, and they worked incredibly well. So I guess it would stay with the grooves. It would stay a little bit cooler. That sort of helped that? Cooler, cooler and, uh, you know, slash fives were always grabby in the rain. They were terrible, yes. Yeah, it helped shed the water a lot. Yeah. Uh, Lots of development and testing with that over a couple-year period of time. Yeah, you know, the... um, I think I'm trying to recall here. You had bought a Slash 5. That was your first BMW. I think uh, uh, Willie P mentioned that was his first bike he got yeah. when he was yeah. in Germany. Uh, that yeah, matter of fact, he, he had that bike back then, and it was kind of still in pieces. And uh, me getting really into Slash 5s motivated him to, to finish his. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where... You know, in the in the Bay Area, you know, as far north as San Francisco, we were like the Slash 5 guys. We stocked everything Slash 5, all the toaster panels, original exhaust. Um, we stocked everything. So guys would come from all over the Bay Area to buy parts from us for Slash 5s. Wow. Yeah, and that was my first uh, BMW as well. I lived in Athens, Ohio. Uh, I, was, I went to college there, so I was fortunate enough that um, Holt, I had Holt BMW nearby. Yeah, uh, and then Mark from Recycled BMW as that's, well. Well, that's exactly right. So the short story was, for me, I had $2,000, and I was going to buy, I decided I was going to buy a motorcycle. And I went down to, like, a multi-brand, uh, Athens, Ohio is a real small college town. And <clears throat> I went down to, like, a little multi-brand dealer. They had a used uh, 77 uh, Ironhead Sportster. And I, I took that out for a ride and, you know, hell, I was, I don't know, I guess I was 19 or 20 or whatever. And I kind of liked the bike, but I couldn't get the fucking thing into second gear. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to buy this. And I was, at the same time, I was just incredulous that they would let a 20-year-old kid ride it, <laughs> test drive a bike around. But anyway, I took it back. Uh, and was headed home, and I saw a Slash 5 for sale out in front of a lawyer's office, a little attorney, small attorney's office, uh, for the same amount of money. It was two grand. I bought it, and uh, I met the guys at Holt, and I, you know, of course, immediately started needing some parts for this and that. I got in touch with Mark uh, at Recycle, and tie that into the story, I, you know, the first couple months I had that bike, I remember exactly what you're talking about with those brakes binding up in the rain. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I got a handful of front brake and almost, you know, the front end went uh, hard left and I almost dumped it. Yeah, I've got some great pictures of Bill and I riding our Slash 5s around. Yeah, man. Well, that's, that's cool. That's a neat, um, that's just a really neat connection. So... Uh, all right, let's. I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the custom builds that you do, and the and the sort of cafe and custom scene uh, that's going around. I guess I wanted to start off just by asking. Uh, you know, you've really sort of summarized and given a, a kind of a cool history about 
the airhead scene uh, in California, Northern California, uh, all those years. Tell me, you know, what what it's like now, and when when did you start to see the sort of custom cafe thing sort of uh, come around? And you know, what was your take on it initially? And you know, how do you how do you still feel about it now? Um, I think the scene started growing around ten years ago um, with just custom BMWs in general. You know, GSs were still popular, and guys were taking you know twin shock BMWs and turning them into off road bikes, and and I thought that was really cool. And then the cafe racer racer scene started happening. Um, first time I saw it was in England, um, untitled motorcycle built a bike that was super cool and it got a lot of notoriety. And then, you know, obviously Facebook came around and Instagram came around and, and you're starting to see more of it worldwide. And, uh, in the past, um, we would take, you know, like an R 100 S and we'd build a combat touring bike out of it. We called it. And that was something that Andy Goldfine of Aristich and I, a phrase we coined years ago where you would take and, you know, build a hot rod out of an R100 with 40 millimeter exhaust, 40 millimeter carbs, sport cam, S fairing, solid mounted saddlebags and your Haro tank bag. And you'd go touring on it. Yeah. So it was kind of the beginning of that cafe racer sort of look. And, you know, San Jose BMW back then had rear sets and, and did high performance parts along with CC products and, and, you know, that kind of phased out. And then all of a sudden, with the Internet growing, you're starting to see the surge of um, guys taking old Japanese bikes and turning them into cafe racers. And that was the beginning of it. Um, and then slowly you started to see people doing it with BMWs as, as the Japanese stuff started getting more expensive and catching up with the pricing of a used BMW. Guys started doing BMWs. And me being a BMW guy, it was just a natural fit. Yeah. So what's your, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm curious to your take on it. Why is uh, Airhead a good platform for that? Um, simple to work on. You know, you can basically take a bike apart and put it back together with a stock toolkit. All the parts kind of make sense. Um, and you could, you could take a 45 year old BMW that's completely worn out and they still run, as you know, um, and so it was just a good, reliable platform. Yeah, well, I, I'll agree with that. That's exactly what I was going to say. And, yeah. you know, also uh, there was a good uh, network of independent mechanics, uh, a good network of, part, you know, parts suppliers and things like that that made it a lot easier. I mean, of course, you know, with any bike, you know, another popular one, I guess I would say it was like a Yamaha XS650. I owned one of those for a while. And yeah. same kind of thing. I mean, the, the aftermarket there's, you know, really solid. Uh, there's good independent suppliers and stuff like that. So I think that kind of helped push it along. Let me ask you about uh, sort of where, where we are today with it um, and sort of bring in the, the subject of, of bring a trailer uh, as well. You see a sure. lot, see a lot of those, a lot of quote unquote cafes or customs on bring a trailer and yeah. predictably, um, you know, uh, and obviously they're popular because they're selling, 
Uh, they're they're on there. People are buying them. But predictably, uh, you know, you'll get guys who come on and comment. I don't know if you go on that site often or, or whatnot, but uh, you get guys that will get on there and comment and just, you know, tear these bikes to shreds. And, you know, why isn't there a rear fender on there? And, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, you're going to get a lawsuit and just... It's ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Sometimes we, we call them we call them BMW engineers. <laughs> okay, is that the term? All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you know, and to a degree, I can under, understand uh, some of the pushback on it. In part because a lot some bikes you see, and especially you know the uh, quote unquote you know Craigslist custom builds and all that kind of stuff, they get a bad reputation. I mean, let's be honest. There are some guys that just make some piles of shit uh, out there and then, you know, try to sell them for $15,000 or, you know, whatever. Uh, and that hasn't really done a lot, in my opinion, uh, to, you know, put a, put a good light on guys who are actually making good bikes. Well, we're also seeing that with, with shops, too. Um I would say in the last year, I've had, in the last year, I have had four bikes in my shop that were built at other shops that I've had to go through. One bike I completely tore apart and had to start over. Um, and the other three required a lot of work. And three of the four bikes came out of one shop. Mm. Yeah. Well, and you know, and it's just like anything. I, it there get it gets to be a bit of a cliche, you know, when you see some of the builds. Um, you know, you see, you know, the pipe wrap and the, you know, the brown seat and and those kind of things, which, you know, whatever. I mean, I guess obviously that's part of the style, but you know, I think in in some regards, and I've talked with a couple other guys about this in some of these other episodes, is. I, I don't know that this is really much different than the 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 chopper craze of the seventies. It's not. It's the same exact thing. Yeah, and 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 that's why you're starting to see a lot of BMW bobbers. Yeah. What it, I want to ask you too. I mean, I've never really ridden one uh, that somebody's done. Are there <clears throat> considerations you have to take into account when you're building a bike like that, as far as practicability? It's still being practical, practical, still being rideable. You know, you see a bike without fenders or, you know, some other modification. You know, the seat doesn't look comfortable. The handlebar, you got clip-on handlebars, you know, and those sort of things. Um, it, in your opinion, so, sort of, what do you have to do to balance that custom build but still make the bike practical, rideable, and, and reliable? Well, I won't build a bike that I personally wouldn't ride from California to New York. Okay. There you go. So, um, I mean, there's, there's a time that I step outside of that if I'm building something for myself and I'm building something for the sake of art, mm -hmm. you know, like our twin turbo was built for the sake of art. I'm building another, I'm building a bobber project for myself that is for art. You know, you can ride the bike around town, but you're not going to ride it to New York. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when, when I build something for a customer, Always. It's got to be practical. Um, I won't wrap exhaust with exhaust wrap. I won't build a bike without fenders. Um, yeah. Well, that makes sense. So <clears throat> as far as so you mentioned 
uh, and without naming them, uh, that's a good idea. You've seen some some less than uh, desirable bills that have come into your shop that you've had to sort of get back on the road and make them roadworthy. Uh, who are you seeing out there? Uh, you know that that you admire. Who are some of the other builders out there that uh, you think? Well, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. I hadn't thought about that, or those guys are are doing it right. Um, Hugo, out of San Francisco, South San Francisco. Hugo Eccles, okay, Untitled Motorcycles. He did. He's been on the Jay Leno show. Um, he's done a few BMWs. He's done a couple Ducatis, and um, most recently he's done an electric bike. Um, he's a designer, and his fit and finish is something that everybody should inspire towards. Um, just super clean details, almost very art, furniture-like, but functional, and just beautiful design. And so, you know, when I'm, like, wiring something, I always think, you know, how would Hugo do it? You know, how would he hide this wiring, and, and how would he route this? Because his work is so clean. I'm going to have to check that out. I, I'm not familiar with him. One, one, one guy that I've uh, followed on YouTube who I've been really impressed with is uh, Sh- uh, Shiro Nakayama at 46 Works. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all, the, all the Japanese guys um, do beautiful work. Um, absolutely beautiful work. Yeah, and you know, I've his, have you watched any of his uh, YouTube stuff, or have you just seen him peripherally? A little bit. Yeah, he's got. Um, First of all, you know, all the videos he produces are, you know, just as high quality as as the motorcycles he does. Uh, his machine shop and his uh, fabrication skills are, are pretty amazing. Um, I, I've just always been impressed uh, with that on that level. But then, like you say, the Japanese uh, sort of design philosophy uh, is a, it's a little bit it's different. I guess to some degree than what you see in the states, and even some guys uh, I've seen that do uh, some Harley Davidsons. There's a guy on YouTube I've watched a little bit, Infinity uh, Motorcycles, who does kind of Evo Sportsters and and stuff like that. You can see uh, you mentioned you know hiding wires or making custom brackets and things that just fit that design philosophy and really give the bike uh, a clean practical look without taking away any of the, you know, sort of usability or reliability of it. And, you know, the Japanese do have, they've got their own style. Yeah. And it's super, super clean. Super clean. I like it. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership 
for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America. And thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Uh, Along those lines, uh, on uh, Boxer Metal, uh, folks can check out, of course, uh, all your product line and stuff like that. But you've got some uh, cool links to some of the builds you've done. Uh, two of them I want to ask you about in particular were two R90s, uh, sort of on, and those were kind of, pardon the pun, horizontally opposed in sort of what you did with them. One was kind of a hot rod. The other was sort of. Um, uh, sympathetic restoration. So let's start out with the one uh, probably a lot of folks have seen uh, that you did. I guess it was on Naked Speed, uh, if that was the the show or whatever. Tell me a little bit about that 90S build you did and, you know, where'd you get the bike and, you know, how'd that all come about? So, uh, let's see. Cafe Racer TV on Discovery was like four or five seasons long. And I got a hold of the producer and said, hey, I'd love to do an episode. So we talked on the phone for a bit and he flew out, looked at our shop and said, yeah, let's do something. He goes, what do you have in mind? He goes, you have to have a customer throw three ideas at me. And the idea that stuck was building a helmet Don style R100 um, on TV. So let me back up. What's the ref, the helmet Don? What's that? He was an old BMW racer out of the 70s. Okay. And he had his own frame design and gas tank and, and everything. And he was very successful in Europe. And I just love the styling of the bike. It had kind of a mint green metallic frame and orange bodywork, and um, I really like the styling a lot. Um, and so that's the direction we went down. So as we're developing this this layout for this TV series, um, the producer contacted me again. He goes, "We've got Reg Pridmore to ride the bike." at Thunderhill Raceway when it's done. And I'm like, cool. I knew Reg um, back when I was building BMW race bikes in the early 90s. He was still a dealer, and he was a great mentor when I was trying to make airheads go faster. And we should note, for, for folks who don't know, uh, I get he was a privateer that won a race in Daytona on a, on a hopped-up uh, 90S. Correct. Yep. Correct. So... We start building the bike, and 
and I decided that we were going to paint the bike Daytona orange and put Reg's numbers on the bike. And so we built a frame, and my buddy Artie, who we did the TV show with, um, built the gas tank from scratch, and we built this amazing R90S replica sort of race bike. Um, and Reg loved riding the bike on the track. He had a, we had a great day out there. It was super windy, um, but we had a great time. Um, and I built it for a customer of ours in Seattle. So once the bike was done, um, the customer had the bike for a while. The bike came back here for me to sell it and I ended up selling it to a bike collector in the UK. Oh, wow. All right, and then so you also did a 90s for the for an MOA raffle or something. Do I have that right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So Ted Moyer of the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America had contacted me to do a raffle bike, and so we bought a brand new R9T, and we did kind of a Manu was a I think a French or Italian motorcycle designer that did a kit in the early 80s for BMWs. So that was the first bike we did for the MOA. And then um, they wanted me to do another bike, and I said, well, let's do an iconic bike, and let's do a 100% 100-point restoration on an R90S. So I dug around, and I found a 74 which is by far the hardest bike to do a hundred point restoration. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, uh, one of the a 75 or 76 would have been a lot easier. Yeah. So I picked a 74 and we did this hundred point restoration. Um, and uh, my wife did the photo shoot and then we shipped the bike and they raffled it off and they said it was the biggest raffle they'd ever done. Yeah. I believe it. So, let me ask you, who who did the paint on that bike? Um, we had a guy about 90 miles south of us do it, and he ended up having to do part of it twice. And then it still wasn't right, so I had a local guy clean it up for me. So I don't really want to recommend him. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I that mean, is, I mean, yeah. everybody knows that is uh, probably one of the more difficult paint jobs to get right. Um, I, yeah, I think the only the only place that I've ever seen really do it right is Holt in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen a couple others that are pretty good, uh, and you know, as everybody knows with that bike, I mean, when they did them at the factory, no two obviously were the same. Uh, right. And but there's just something about getting that the the fade right, uh, getting the color combos to to blend right at the right spots where you've got the fade. And I mean, let's be honest, if you're not using uh glasserite paint, uh, you're probably going to get the color wrong right out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, the paint was, was easier than everything else. You really? know, sourcing, all the, sourcing all the correct hardware and spending, you know, hours and days, you know, hand filing nicks out of the hardware and blasting the hardware and getting it plated correctly finding all the correct parts. Um, I had I had some things that I had stashed away. Um, 
you know, back in the day, there was weird stuff like the the wire ties were two piece wire ties. Well, I had stashed a bunch of that stuff away twenty years ago, finding the correct badges for the sea cow in the tank. Yep, um, I had stashed some of that stuff away years ago. Um, yeah, and just getting everything absolutely spot on. Did you ever happen to see that uh, the build Max did on that uh, R90s from New Parts? Yeah, with all, the, all the new parts, yeah. Yeah, I mean that it was kind of neat. I mean, you know, granted, it was just sort of, um, you know, I, I guess it was kind of a novelty and something fun to do. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a correct restoration. But no. It was, the cool part of that was built out of all brand new BMW parts. I, I, exactly. I mean, that was the thing, really, that I think amazed me the most was that they were able to get all those parts new for a bike from, you know, from the early 70s. And I think, uh, I don't know, I can't remember what they weren't able to, to source new, but uh, it was maybe four or five parts. Yeah, I mean, how many manufacturers can say we can offer parts for a bike that's 45 years old? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so <clears throat> want to encourage folks to check out uh, uh, your website, Boxer Metal, and check out uh, all those cool builds you did. Uh, I want to move on to another uh, subject here. <clears throat> um, so I remember, you know, you used to, I remember seeing you post on Adventure Rider for a while. I think that was sort of how I first, you know, kind of became aware of you and then started checking out, uh, you know, what you were doing otherwise. And, you know, let's just be honest here, the ADV form or any, let's not poke fingers uh, at ADV here, but any motorcycle forum, uh, you know, you get your uh, commenters, I guess you called them BMW engineers or whatever the term was, but uh, I know you were on there for a while and then you just decided basically, you know, to hell with it. Uh, it, yeah, just, it, it just wasn't yeah. worth it. Just tell me a little bit about that, ex that experience for you. Well, it's not just ADV rider. It's, yeah. it's every form. You know, if, if it's not original BMW, then it's bad or wrong. Um, there's a lot of really bad advice and a lot of really rude opinions. Yep. Um, and you know, you, you take somebody building, whether it's something that they write every day or they're building a custom, you know, that's their pride and joy. And to sit there and just put them down because you don't agree with what they're doing, you know, obviously, I, you know, the, the First Amendment is, is incredibly important. You know, everybody has the freedom of speech. But sure. Don't be a dick about it. I, I agree 100%. I mean, I can't remember, I can't remember exactly... Uh, and I don't, we don't need to go into the, de you know, details there, but I, I mean, I can remember seeing some of the comments and just being like thinking to myself, why even type something? What's, what are you adding to the conversation here? And yeah. in the end, we're all in the same, uh, little tribe here to begin with. Yeah. Instead of being a dick, go out and build something. Yeah. You know? And so I was on the airhead section of ADV Rider, and I was on the sidecar section. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was a lot of a lot of bad advice, uh, and a lot of ignorance, and a lot of just mean, rude people. Matter of fact, I built a sidecar for a guy and his dog, and he's now traveling in through Mexico, and he's going to go around the world. And he's had some issues with his bike. 
Um, he had taken it to another sidecar builder um, since I built it to have some work done. Um, he wanted some changes after writing it a bit, and, and he's had some issues with that. And so he sent me a link last week to his ride report, I guess it was. And I read through five of, I don't know how many pages there was, and it was just the same stuff again. I'm like, bad advice, rude people. There's, it just, it just made me realize why I don't go onto forums anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, and to be fair, I mean, there's a lot of good advice. There's a lot of nice people uh, as well. Uh, but sad to say, you know, sometimes the loudest, uh, more ignorant voices uh, are the ones that get heard and amplified more to a certain degree. You know, I'm still on, uh, you know, on ADV and a couple other forms and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I've found sometimes it's better, you know, for me just uh, to walk on by, so to speak, and, you know, and, and not not even pay much attention to it. But the reason I ask is, you know, you being involved in um, the industry and, you know, as a as a business um, has, you know, as that not being involved in forums and, you know, connecting with people that way had it, has that affected you at all? Or you just got no. off it and it was, you know, you washed your hands clean and that was it. You know, I've been doing this obviously a long time. Yeah. And for me to get onto a forum and give somebody free advice is taking away from me making money. Yeah. And, and to have to listen to people's rhetoric over that is no. And as far as does it affect my business? No. Our customers are not club people. They're not, they're not forum people. They're people that are passionate about motorcycles, no matter what the bike is. Um, and they're people that want to have cool stuff. Yeah. You know, they might have, you know, a vintage Porsche and a whole other collection of vintage cars and motorcycles. And they see something online that drew them to a custom BMW when they contact us. Um, but they're not folks that are going to get on a forum, um, or be in a BMW club or go to a BMW rally at all. Um, so there's no benefit for myself or boxer metal to be on a forum or to go to a BMW rally as far as business is concerned. I hear you loud and clear, loud and clear. And, you know, for those listening who are, you know, MOA members or go to rallies and stuff like that, I mean, that's all cool. I went to a few rallies, you know, back in the nineties, uh, and you know, I, I was there for a day and I was ready to leave and go ride somewhere else and do something else. I mean, I I found them boring, you know, personally. Yeah, I, was, I was just asked last week to come to the next BMW MOA rally in Wisconsin, maybe, mm -hmm. and do a talk on custom BMW motorcycles and mostly Slash 5s, because I guess they're honoring the Slash 5 this year. Okay. And... You know, it'd be kind of fun to do that, but there's no, there's no gain or benefit for boxer metal to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's something that, you know, I'm giving up a week of my time for free, um, 
which if I had the time, it might be something fun to do, but I don't have the time. Yeah. No, I understand. And, you know, there's, and there are good benefits about some of those clubs. I mean, you're old enough to remember, I, I don't know if you were in the MOA uh, and used the uh, anonymous book. I mean, that, oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, like that. oh, dude, yeah. I mean, that thing, yeah. yeah, that saved my ass more than one time. Uh, and, yeah. I, you know, and I had some of the best stories and my memories are, it usually turns out, you know, when you break down or something happens and then what's, you know, how does fate turn uh, as a result of that? Who do you meet? And, you know, what kind of stories and experiences do you have as a result of that? So, you know, there's benefits to it, too. But, you know, I'm kind of like you. I'm I'm not a a club or a group guy. I don't, you know, uh, a little bit more of a lone wolf and, you know, just prefer to ride with a buddy or two and and just keep it at that. But everybody's different. The the biggest part of that, too, is you look at the age, you look at the age groups, Mm -hmm. people that are in a BMW club or on a BMW forum. For the most part, they're mature, older people. And, you know, the younger generation, they're on Instagram and Facebook. That's right. And, you know, they're not, they're not thinking about setting up a tent at a rally and going to a seminar and sitting around drinking beer, you know, talking <laughs> about, you know, how their ride, you know, their 3,000 ride, mile ride to the rally was. Um, it's just it's you're not seeing that anymore no it, it's it's different and you know the irony there you mentioned the the words you know mature adults uh and sometimes you know especially in the forums you would think you would uh have conversations and interactions with mature adults but that's not always the case sadly yeah i mean you'd almost have a better conversation with a five-year-old sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh lord all right well Let's jump off that one sort of big subject I want to uh, talk to you about here before I go on to my final few questions. Uh, what's your take on 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 bring a trailer? I think it's cool. My wife does photography for people that put vehicles on bring a trailer. Oh, really? Um, I have you know friends and customers that send me links. Uh, a friend of mine just sold his custom BMW on bring a trailer. Um, I think it's cool. I think it's super cool. Do you, <clears throat> are you surprised at some of the prices some of the bikes are getting? Yes. Um, yes and no. Um, you know, when I see the typical custom airhead build that's black wheels, black motor, black transmission, <laughs> wrapped exhaust, yeah. bringing eighteen to $20,000, I'm shocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm shocked. Um, but at the same time, there's some beautiful custom builds that come across, that come on Bring a Trailer. There are. There are. Yeah. And, and, that, it, and, the, and the interesting thing is they're bringing about the same amount as what I would consider a, a, a much less desirable build. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, and who and you would know this, I think, uh, better than most folks. Who are the clientele that are are buying those bikes? So are those the same kind of folks you were kind of describing earlier? Um, yeah, it's, it's our customer base. Yeah, it's people who have exposure. You know, they've got extra income, and they like cool things. 
Yeah, fair enough. And it, the the other thing though is uh, custom bikes aside. Then you're also seeing, um, you know, maybe a, a a bike that hasn't been modified, something that's a little bit more stock. Um, you know, I've been seeing a lot of uh, you know recently uh, a couple uh, Paris Dakar uh, R R80 GSs. Uh, the prices on those uh, have really gone up, at least as far as yep. bring a trailer goes. Uh, yep. You know, what? what's your take on, is that pricing the sort of um, regular guy out of just a good, solid, you know, original bike these days? Well, I think bring a trailer is, is, is um, you know, their customer base, so to speak, is as somebody of a higher education and a higher, uh, you know, has more money. Sure. Um, and with, with the requirements of bring a trailer, as far as the description, the video and, and the quality of the pictures, it really shows what the bike truly is. You know, when you see something on, Facebook Marketplace or on Craigslist, you're not really getting that same look and feel. Um, so Bring a Trailer has definitely stepped up with that, and, and even better than eBay. Um, they've really brought it up to the next level. Yeah, and of course you've got the, uh, you know, the comment section, which for the most part can be constructive. Uh, but at times well, again, you, you, you brought up uh, Bob from Bob's BMW. Yeah, um, I love Bob's comments on bringing trailers. He's he's spot on. In fact, uh, yeah, we talked a, we talked a little bit about that, and he's not going on there, you know, necessarily judging or anything. He's just giving uh, what I think is an experienced, valued opinion that yeah. uh, that everybody yeah. should should listen to. I nicknamed Bob Uncle Bob (laughs) 25 years ago. Bob and I go way back. We've done a lot of business together in the past. And, and, you know, he's come out to my house and stayed at my house. And, you know, Bob's Bob knows what he's doing. He's good people. He does. He does. Well, uh, as I mentioned to a couple other guys, we talked about the, the whole BAT phenomenon. I think it'll just be interesting to see in the next you know, five, you know, I don't, who knows, five years, maybe sooner. I think it may be sooner. Uh, how the bubble's going to burst on this. Um, you know, Bob made some com. I think it was Bob Henning made some comments about, you know, at one time uh, there were, you know, the, the muscle car uh, craze and Meekum auctions and, you know, the televised auctions and things like that. You were, oh, yeah. you were seeing, you know, a Trans Am or I don't know my muscle cars too well, but or a charger or something like that, just go for ridiculous money for a few years. And then the market finally settled down. And, you know, you've got guys who spent a hundred, two hundred thousand $200,000 on a car. It's probably not, you know, they're not going to be able to turn around and sell it for that. So uh, it, I think uh, there's the jury's still out on, on the effect it's going to have on, on bikes uh, in the market. And, you know, full disclosure, uh, I have bought an R80 GS that I got for a good price, and I'm gonna I'm gonna massage it up and and get one listed on there here in the next few months. So uh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I'm gonna dip my toe in. Yeah, 
I was going to, so my first Flash 5, I sold to a friend of mine with the idea that I could buy it back. Mm-hmm. So I bought it back 20 years and 20 days later. <laughs> In the same exact condition, wow. I sold it to him. Same money? And Not the same money, obviously. Close. Okay. All right. Very close. Yeah, very, very close. And that was the original agreement. So I got the bike back, and we had it for a couple of years, and I rode it a little bit, the wife and I. But it sat in the front room at the shop, and I realized that it really needs to be ridden. So I cleaned the bike up replaced a few things, rebuilt the wheels and my wife did a photo shoot and put it up on Instagram. And my thought was if it didn't sell on Instagram, we were going to put it on, bring a trailer. Well, it sold on Instagram in 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my first thought after Instagram was bring a trailer. Yep. Yep. All right, let's move on. I got a, a few kind of quick fire questions. I just want to get your take on. We've been getting everybody to answer these. So uh, for you, Chris, uh, if you could determine uh, your your Mount Rushmore of the Type 247 uh, Airhead from 90 to 95, the four bikes uh, that you would uh, put up on, on Mount Rushmore. From 90 to 95 or 70? Oh, I'm sorry, to 70 to 95. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Um, 1970 R75-5 in silver. Um, 78 40-millimeter exhaust R100RS Motorsport. Um, 81 through 87 R80GS. And 1981 R100 CS with factory spoke wheels. Ah, yes. The the classic that's, sport. Yeah, that's four. How many? Yeah, you got it. That's four. Okay. So, right, yeah. yeah that's four. Interesting. Yeah. So, that the, that last one you mentioned, um, the, the CS with the wire wheels, that's uh, – you're the first one to make an appearance with it, that bike. So, yeah. I'll, I'll approve that. I'll I helped a friend of mine build three of them with spoke wheels. Yeah, those are sharp. Yeah, and that spoke wheel conversion is something that I've offered for over 20 years. So spoke wheel with a rear drum? Rear drum and Brembo front brakes. Yeah. I just bought a 78 uh, RS uh, in gold. Um, Favorite favorite absolute color of every BMW. I, I have to agree. That's why I bought it. And... <clears throat> I as I'm, I've kind of got it torn down to the frame now and just going through it, but um, you know that's the first thing that crossed my mind is, man, should I get a standard swing arm and spoke wheel this thing uh, or what? But I'm going to stick with the snowflakes, and you know I've never had a, a airhead with a rear uh, disc. Uh, I don't know if it's an upgrade or just unnecessarily complicated, but uh, I'll make They're my. Terrible. They're absolutely terrible. <laughs> well, I'm... I have I have converted that same setup to rear disc spoke wheel and spoke wheel front. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I I may end up doing that, but you know, in this case, the bike I, I bought has like sixty two hundred miles on it. Um, oh. Just a handful of owners, so. You know, it's one of those I want to try to keep uh, as a, as an original uh, example. 
Does it have 40 millimeter exhaust? It's a C, it's a CFO. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, and let me, let me, let me get your take on that. Is there a real big difference in performance? Uh, or is it just that, that, you know, was the, the last hurrah of the big valve, big pipe airhead. I mean, could you, if well, you were to get on a CFO apparently stood for California, Florida, and Oregon. Right. And in order for BMW to meet emissions in the U S they had to produce so many bikes that the decibel level was at a certain point. And that's why they did 38 millimeter exhaust in late 77 through 78. The bikes ended up all over the country. Um, but the 40 millimeter bikes were a true 70 horsepower bike instead of 65 horsepower. So 40 millimeter exhaust gave you a true five horsepower upgrade with just exhaust. Okay. Well, fair enough. So there is a bit of a, uh, maybe not hugely noticeable, but there is a bit of, of a performance upgrade. And then you could probably hear the difference a little bit too. And with those larger, uh, you could feel the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try not to be too disappointed then. Um, all right, Chris, tell me uh, your best uh, or worst roadside repair and or breakdown. Um, so either something happened and you miraculously saved the bike on the side of the road or something just uh, went to shit and you know you had to get a trailer or something like that. You mentioned, you know, the earlier the ride, uh, you went up to Canada. Uh, was there another some another time? Yeah, I had, I built an R100 Enduro sidecar rig that I rode to Alaska in 97. And prior to that, I had wrecked it through a rock slide in Death Valley. And I got tossed off the bike at about, I was probably still doing about 60 when I got off the bike. And a signpost kept the bike from going, hit the, the valve cover hit the signpost, kept the bike from going off of a cliff. Oh, Lord. And I went to the hospital, mostly on the back of a motorcycle. Um, and then we rented a, a van, put the bike in the back of the van. So that was pretty bad. And then a year later, you know, I put the bike back together and I was in Whitehorse, no, Dawson City, Dawson City, yeah. Up in Yukon. In the Yukon. Yeah. And I noticed that my sidecar tire had completely worn out and I had a spare with me. I didn't realize the accident had bent the swing arm. So I found a shop in the Yukon. The guy did truck repair. We pulled the bike in. And we straightened out the swing arm, and I found a 125.15 tire in Washington that had it shipped to the U. No, had it shipped to Toke, Alaska. And uh, that was very unnerving, being all the way in the Yukon, not knowing <laughs> that the next three weeks of my trip, if I was going to have an issue again. Yeah, good grief. But we got it. We got it fixed. So, one bike, two big incidences. Well, and I'll say this, you know, uh, I've had, I haven't had any really super traumatic things happen like that, but I'm always, I've always been amazed at the willingness and generosity uh, of folks to help uh, with a repair or something like that when you're on a motorcycle trip. It seems like they'll go out of their way and take that extra step because they know, you know, you're sort of out there uh, on your own. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, tell me one design change uh, you would go back in time uh, on the uh, 247 uh, model, 70 to 75. You go back to BMW. You're in the time machine. You're going to change one design flaw. What would it be? God. Um I'm staring at a bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so many, um, I don't know. Um a design flaw. So, for example, uh the sur surclip on the later transmissions. Um Yeah, I, I don't agree with that fix. I think that's a a bunch of BS. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I think somebody else mentioned, we alluded to this, you know, the, the, um, disc brake, uh, on the 78 model or the first year the disc brake came out. Uh, yeah, I mean, in 74, when they came out the disc brake, it was, I think it was way worse than a drum, but for the time it was still a good break. So for, if we're thinking about an era specific thing, you know, that was pretty good for the time. I would say charging system there you go okay so on my enduro sidecar rig that i took to alaska i ended up mounting a delco alternator off the side of the frame and belt driving it off the crank and i think if bmw could have put the charging system in a place that had less heat um and had more output that would probably be the only thing yeah uh, and but honestly i don't think there's anything better than a BMW Airhead. I mean, as an entire bike over that time frame with 25 years, they're pretty solid. I agree. And just about anybody who's owned, everybody who's owned one has, you know, had some sort of charging or, or electrical issue. And of course you would on any motorcycle, but uh, I, I'm in fact, that's well, when I talk with Rick Jones at Motorrad Electric, you know, he's like, yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, that's what's kept me in business all these years is the is the port. Yeah, port. yeah back when I before I did this alternator conversion on my sidecar rig um, with some help from Rick Jones back in the early 90s, I developed the 450 watt charging system. Oh, OK. And it started off with a Fiat 124 Sater and a early slash five rotor, which was a half millimeter larger in diameter, and developed that charging system. And that's a it remains a popular upgrade. Yeah. Sure does. Yeah. All right. La the last burning question here, Chris. Everybody wants to know what oil do you use? <laughs> um, on airheads either Valvoline Racing or Castrol GTX. And on any of the new bikes, oil heads, anything else, uh, factory BMW oil. There you go. All right, folks want to reach out to you. Obviously, they can find you at uh, boxermetal.com. And then uh, you mentioned as far as uh, other ways, social media or whatever, you're on. are you still yeah. on Instagram? Instagram, Boxer Metal, Facebook, Boxer Metal, um, if people have questions, info at Boxer Metal. Um, I don't get much of a chance to answer the phone because I'm in the shop, um, but I can check emails when I get up in the morning and before I go to bed at night. Um, and I can always set up a time to call somebody. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Well, look. Uh, email we'll, is number one. 
we'll we'll have all those links uh, in uh, the about section of the podcast, uh, so folks can go back and and find all those and how to get in contact with you. Chris, look, it's uh, it's been a real uh, pleasure meeting you, uh, hearing all your stories. I honestly I didn't know a whole lot about you before we talked. Uh, this morning, but I was just really impressed with all your history, all the guys you've known, and, and everything you've done with these bikes over the years. So, continued success. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that was an interesting and fun conversation this week with Chris Canterbury. As always, be sure to check out Chris's website, Boxer Metal. We've put a link to it in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. <laughs>